I haven't already greeted you. Uh, good to see you here. Uh, happy Mother's Day. And somewhere out there, there's somebody who's clutching his forehead saying, oh my gosh, I've got to buy a hanging basket of flowers and some chocolates before noon. Um, so I imagine the grocery stores and things will probably be packed today because that's usually the way it goes. Us guys are not necessarily the best sometimes at remembering these things. But I'm sure I'm thankful for moms. Um, I think um, godly parenthood is um, one of the best witnesses that Christian people have, along with um, marriages that last. It's one of the, the best things that we're able to do as a witness to the world. So we're sure thankful for you ladies and the work that you do that us guys never could. Um, so let's take a look at uh, the psalm for today, which is Psalm 82, and I'm going to read that and you can read along with me. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Praise God for the truth of his word. And um, this morning, what do we have that we need to remember in prayer? Um, certainly remember Miss Carolyn, she's recovering at home, um, doing some better. Um, still, indication as much as anything that it's a muscle spasm, is that kind of what you're still thinking? Yeah. Yeah, so um, she, if you don't know, Carolyn ended up in the hospital. Um, a couple days ago, they really thought she had kidney stone because of the extreme pain she was in. And um, fortunately, it turned out not to be that apparently. Um, they think it was a muscle spasm. They now at least got fairly much under control. But um, we pray for her as she recuperates at home and keep the happy as they take care of her. Um, what else do we need to remember this morning? Yes, ma'am. My friend Ravonda. Yes. I did have her, and she'll be going for some more tests and biopsies before they decide this pregnant on the bone Okay, all right, so remember April's friend Ravonda um, as she um, undergoes more tests to try to determine what's going to be the best path forward with treating this bone cancer that she has. Um, certainly that's a scary prospect. Um, I think um, at some level, all of us in the back of our minds, every time there's an inch or a pain, you know, we worry about cancer, and that's something that's hard to hear from the doctor that you got that. So certainly praying for her and that, um, you know, the doctor will be able to do something to be able to help her and um, that. Um, God comfort her through whatever that process is. Um, what else is new? We're all folks that didn't get beer this morning, so obviously we have some folks who are under the weather. Yes, check out. The options for what? I'm sorry. Oh, uh, um, his education. Yes. about that, about what's best for Yoshi in terms of um, the next step in terms of education and things. Um, uh, we've been there. It's um, a little bit challenging. Of course, honestly, you know, I've, I've come to the conclusion that it, every child, every average child, every child with any kind of special needs, whatever, it is a very individual kind of thing. You know, I don't think there is any kind of cookie cutter, one size fits all kind of approach that's best for every child or every family. And so, um, that's something I think that we ought to be very prayerful about, and um, certainly that God calls us as parents, you know, to 
to educate our children in ways that point them to the Lord. And so, you know, we ought to be finding ways that, that uh, we can do that, whether it's um, public school and supplementing at home with um, Christian education, whether it's, um, you know, some sort of specialized program or homeschooling or whatever. There's lots of options out there. You're praying for them for sure. What else this morning? Let's just uh, come before the Lord now. Father God, we just uh, lay out before you these things that um, we've named, uh, these cares and concerns. Uh, Lord, about um, those who are not well and they need your healing touch. Uh, particularly for Ravonda, Lord, that you would uh, give her um, your peace. And that, Father, you would um, guide the doctors and the providers who are um, exploring what options there are for treating her cancer. And God, that you would... Uh, it be your will, Lord, that you would give them ultimate success that she might be uh, fully healed to your glory. In any case, Father, uh, we pray that you would be near to her, that you would help her to experience your love for her in new and deeper ways um, through this time. Father, thank you for the blessing of parenthood, for the blessing of mothers that we celebrate today, for the blessing of families who uh, love your children, and we uh, have an abundance of that privilege. Um, we're uh, very thankful for all our little voices in service. Um, I love hearing the, uh, the peeps and squeals of delight of uh, little kids. And Father, um, they are evidence of your goodness and your love for us. And uh, Father, help us to raise them well as covenant children, to um, point them to you, and to, um, to love and guide them in ways that um, glorify you. Father, thank you for the opportunity to come together this morning and meet. Thank you for the opportunity to be able to um, come and lay our burdens before you. Because, God, we come rejoicing because of your goodness, but we also come struggling because of the hardness of this world. Honestly, life is difficult here. And you promised that it would be. We're not shocked that things don't always go as we might envision them. Um, I know for myself, as something of an idealist, I'm often um, taken aback that uh, things don't go as well as I think they should. But, Lord... Thank you that you are in the midst of all those things, that you permit the circumstances in our lives, and that you use them, um, even if um, you've not particularly um, imposed them on us, God, that you use the circumstances of our brokenness and the fallenness of this world, God, to uh, draw our hearts to you. God, we just pray you do that very thing this morning, that you draw our hearts close. Father, that uh, our words and our songs will lift you up before people, that you would be glorified. And we thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Ian, come lead us. I must 
Did and tried I need a great Savior. 
Mark of Ages is maybe particularly appropriate because we're talking about atonement still in Leviticus and um, you know the words of that song are very true. I mean that's very much what atonement is, is a saving from God's wrath. It's an appeasement of God's wrath. Um, under the old covenants it was for a time, it was a temporary kind of thing through the sacrifices that God instituted. And in Christ it is a permanent, unchangeable state for all those who grafted into him. So let's look today at Leviticus chapter 15, I mean it's 17, but last week it's 16. Um, remember we saw how God established this day of atonement, what Jews call Yom Kippur. And it was a time when the priest would go to this temple, he would make a sacrifice for his own cleanliness. And then he would go into the Holy of Holies, that place within the, the tabernacle where God's presence dwelled. And remember he had to swing a censer of incense to create a cloud before himself. Lest he see the face of God and be struck dead by the holiness of God. Because even with that sacrifice having been made the moment before he walks into the Holy of Holies, he's still not fully, permanently cleansed from sin. He's still not perfectly pure before God. And there in the temple, the priest would sacrifice one goat, throwing his blood on the altar and on the ark as God commanded. And another goat would be... Um, ceremonially laden with the sins of the people by laying on hands and sent out in the wilderness, right? The scapegoat, the scapegoat, the one that would carry away the sins of the people far from the camp in an image of what God wanted to do, what God ultimately would do in Christ. He said he separates our sins as far from us as east is from west. In other words, it's a permanent removal of sin. We're the sacrifices of the old covenant provided temporary remedy from sin, temporary appeasement of God's wrath. And we kind of touched, I guess, on this concept um, the last time, um, but I want to dig into it a little more in chapter 17 um, because it's worth exploring what it means to create peace with God. Um, I think it bears a little more study for the sake of understanding some terms and ideas that are kind of confusing and misleading in the way we talk about that sometimes. So as we look at chapter 17, I want to think about this idea of atonement, of peacemaking between God and man. Leviticus 17 begins at verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons and all the people of Israel, and say to them, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded. If anyone of the house of Israel kills an ox or a lamb or a goat in the camp, or kills it outside the camp, and does not bring it to the entrance of the the tent of meeting to offer it as a gift to the Lord in front of the tabernacle of the Lord. Blood guilt shall be imputed to that man. He has shed blood, and that man shall be cut off from among his people. This is to the end that the people of Israel may bring their sacrifices that they sacrifice in the open field, that they may bring them to the Lord, to the priest at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and sacrifice them as sacrifices of peace offerings to the Lord. Peace, obviously. That idea of atonement, that idea of appeasing God's wrath. Verse 6, And the priest shall show, throw the blood on the altar of the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting, and burn the fat for a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom that whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. And you say to them, Any one of the house of Israel or of strangers who sojourn among them, who offers a burnt offering or sacrifice, it does not bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting to offer it to the Lord. That man shall be cut off from his people. 
If anyone in the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn among them eats any blood, I will set my face against that person who eats blood and will cut him off from among his people. For the life of the flesh is the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement for, by the life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, No person among you shall eat blood, neither shall any stranger who sojourns among you eat blood. Anyone also of the people of Israel, or the strangers who sojourn among them, who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten, shall pour out its blood and cover it with earth. For the life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. Therefore I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature, for the life of every creature is in its blood. Whoever eats it shall be cut off. And every person who eats what dies of itself, or what is torn by beasts, whether he is a native or a sojourner, shall wash his clothes and bathe himself in water and be unclean until the evening. Then he shall be clean. But if he does not wash them or bathe his flesh, he shall bear his iniquity. So, counting this, we've got seven chapters of Leviticus left. And we're going to see how this next, this and the next nine chapters go into some excruciating detail um, about a wide variety of topics. About sexuality and the year of Jubilee, about capital punishment, um, about very specific things about the bread that was to be offered at the tabernacle, um, all that kind of stuff. And in all those different areas, the thing we can see again and again is that God says that the Israelites' behavior needs to reflect his glory. That the ways that they live need to reflect the covenant that God has made with them and God's grace to them, and that that should be borne out in their lives. Now, that's a fairly foundational concept, I think, for us as modern-day Christians. We understand that being a Christian should impact, should change your life. That there should be evidence in your life of God's goodness and that you should look different than the unsaved world, right? But through Moses, God is giving these people a very specific set of commandments about some fairly commonplace kinds of activities even. To show them how much detail God's concerned about. That God isn't just concerned with them naming the name of the Lord, but He's concerned with them obeying Him in everything. And the first rule that God gives you through Moses and Aaron is that no one is allowed to kill an animal, whether for a sacrifice or just for a family meal, anywhere, and not bring it to the entrance of the tabernacle. And God gives them a reason why. He says in verse 7, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. So apparently, God's people, and it's written to Israel, right? This is to the people of God, to the chosen people of God. God's people, apparently still, some of them were seeking after foreign gods and idols and practicing sacrifices to demons, apparently, um, sorcery, those kinds of things that God had forbidden. So God creates this statute, this clear uh, delineation of what's right and wrong for them. He says the animals only be slaughtered at the entrance of the tabernacle or be brought there if they're slaughtered elsewhere. And anyone who kills an animal for any purpose needs to bring it for a peace offering before the Lord. And its blood needs to be cast on the altar as they would do for any peace offering. Or that person bears the guilt of the blood. The person bears the guilt of having taken the life of that animal without a holy purpose, and therefore, he says, he should be cut off from among his people. 
That means he would be cast out of the camp of Israel, but he also means he would be removed um, symbolically from the number of the people of God. Um, and we remember the first commandment, right? God forbids the worship of any other idol or God. God says he's jealous over his people. Um, and then in verse 11, we've got this really kind of pivotal statement here. It says, for the life of the flesh is the blood. And I've given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. So here we've got a couple of things, really, really valuable principles. The first one is that life is precious to God because all life belongs to God. You know, maybe this is a really good example of what Job says, right? The Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. You know, and, and what Job says is that nothing God could require of us, nothing that God could take from us, wasn't God's gift to us to begin with. Because of requiring a sacrifice, God is asking his people for nothing but the return of what he's given them, Right? If they're allowed to kill an animal to feed their family, and from that they can make a peace sacrifice to God of the blood of that animal. God has given them a gracious gift, and he's requiring a part of that as a return to him, as an acknowledgement that he is the giver. Um, I think we could extend that to a lot of things. I think we could extend that to the consideration of why life matters so much to God and why the preservation of life and Standing up for life is so important for Christian people today. I think we could say that, you know, God clearly has a principle here that life is tied up in blood and the shedding of blood, the, the, the unauthorized or the unsanctified shedding of blood is something that God condemns. Now, I don't think that means that wrong for people shoot, shoot varmints in their backyards or anything like that. But clearly God has... Um, a lot of designations in scripture that set people apart as being higher than animals. And God says here that an animal that's wastefully sacrificed or that's sacrificed in an unholy way that isn't brought to the temple, that the person's guilty for the blood of that animal. How much more then would we be guilty for the blood of another human being? Right? And then the second major principle here, I think, is this. The entire system of sacrifices was God's merciful gift to his people. It was his gift to Israel as a way, and in this case, still temporarily, but a way for them to create peace between themselves and God. Otherwise, God's righteous anger would have just consumed them, right? I mean, they would have been destroyed by God's righteousness. And it's ironic because when you and I look at the requirements of Leviticus, especially these chapters we're getting ready to wade into, man, there's a lot of do's and don'ts and a lot of complexities of the offerings that are required and all that kind of stuff. And what I tend to think of is, man, this is burdensome. This is really demanding. This seems like punishment on God's people for their inability to be consistently holy. But the truth is, when we step back and look at it, the system of sacrifices is God's grace to his people. It gives them the means to be at peace with them in spite of the fact that they can't be perfectly holy as God demands. So it's not to give them a burden, but to set them free from a burden. And I think we can certainly draw some parallels between that and the requirements of righteousness in the New Covenant. Um, we all kind of chafe at the reins of God's commandments at times, right? But it's clear that God made the covenant in His blood for our benefit, isn't it? 
Now, one thing, real quick, about one more thing, and this is one that I think is a challenge for some people when they come to study what we would call kind of classical Christian or classical Protestant theology, at least. Um, and that's the truth that people stood up for and died and preserved in the Reformation in the centuries since. Um, certainly, um, there are a lot of branches of evangelical Christianity that might see um, things in various ways, and, uh, and that's okay. I mean, you know, there is no... One of the things we need to remember is what are and are not primary salvation issues. And if somebody doesn't understand the mechanics of how God saves people the same way I do, that doesn't mean that person isn't just a savior's eye. Um, but we do know that there are some pretty deep principles here about how God acts in salvation. And I think it's worth us taking a second to understand. Um, you know that we have, we talk about the, the tulip of um, of really Protestant theology because it all you know began with the Reformation that you know the T for total depravity, the U for unconditional election, the L for limited atonement, the I for irresistible grace, the P for perseverance and the saints. And here the L, that limited atonement, comes into play. And I think it's one of those things, probably one of the things people most struggle with, honestly. One of the things that often gets really confused or misunderstood or whatever. Um, so let's talk just for a second about that because it is addressed here in Leviticus. That idea of limited atonement, or I kind of prefer to say specific atonement, or definite or specific redemption, is about understanding God's original design, God's original purpose or plan that he had in mind in sending Christ into the world and out on the cross. And the question basically comes down to this, did God have specific people in mind whom Christ would save? Um, and I'll be honest with you, I mean, I know people to whom that seems like a very offensive suggestion, even to, to explore that idea. The idea that God didn't intend to save everyone, but only certain people. Even though, to me, it seems to be through Scripture from one end to the other. We see, for instance, here how Israel received God's commands about how they could make peace with Him. But God didn't give these commands to any of the nations around them, did He? His chosen people, those whom He set apart for Himself, received commands about how they could live in ways that would make peace with God, but foreign nations that worshipped other gods didn't receive that. And they continued in their blindness and continued to worship goat demons and whatever. Um, so real quick, here's what I see as kind of the possibilities. You know, did God send Jesus to make salvation possible, or did God send Jesus to accomplish the salvation of specific people? Um, essentially, those are kind of the tenets held by two broad streams of Christian theology um, based on soteriology. That's our understanding of how salvation happens. Um, you know, one, uh, one set of, um, one school of thought, I guess, would say that, it, you know, God makes salvation possible for every person, but it requires an individual choice or an act of free will independent of the work of God or it won't ever happen. And then the other school of thought says that, you know, God is sovereign over everything, and that includes salvation. And that he means the salvation of the soul when he's speaking to Moses and said, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I'll show compassion to whom I choose. Um, you know, that school of thought would say that Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient for the entire world, but only effectual for the people that God draws to himself. So the question is, did God through Jesus make salvation possible for everybody, but with the possibility that no one would ever be saved? Or did God assure through Jesus' sacrifice the redemption of everyone he ever intended to save? 
And for me, that comes down to that whole idea of is God sovereign or is God not sovereign? Um, ultimately, it's about that idea, the sovereignty of God, about this aspect of God's nature. Um, sort of like American politics, there's a lot of rhetoric and misunderstanding and uh, mutual mudslinging on both sides of that. And in truth, I don't know a studied, thoughtful Arminian who believes that salvation is just like ordering coffee, that it's just a choice, or that you can lose your salvation with just a single misstep or a single sin. I don't know any true classical Arminian who believes that. I don't know a studied, thoughtful Calvinist who believes that anyone who's ever seriously desired to be saved could, or the person who can, can truly desire salvation and be saved and show no evidence of any change or sanctification of the Holy Spirit. I don't, I've never encountered that in anybody that I thought had a, a really studied biblical opinion. The fact is, we really agree pretty much on most of this stuff with just some shades of meaning. And so it turns out that, like politics, often labels are just not that helpful, I think. Um, it's pretty worthless to go around arguing about labels and not really understanding the issues and talking about the issues. For me, it just makes sense and it seems clear from Scripture from my own understanding of what God has done in my life, when I compare that with God's Word, that God began with a design to save a remnant of people, a set of people with a specific purpose of bringing glory and eternity. And then He saves them entirely out of His gracious nature, apart from any righteousness of their own. And by that definition, atonement in its original design has always been specific to the people of God not to the entire world. Um, Jesus says he lays down his life for the ones that the Father has given to him. And there are repeated indications that God's design is for Jesus to save and to keep specific people to present to the Father at the day of resurrection. Um, some people struggle. They read, you know, for instance, 2 Peter 3 says, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. The struggle that we get into there is we have to read it in its context, like so much of Scripture. And when we do, we realize that that word any refers back to the people that Peter is addressing who are all believers. And it seems to be saying any of us, it doesn't seem to refer to any of the world beyond. But there's room to argue about that. There's room to understand that in different ways. Um, similarly, John 3.16 often gets construed as a universal offer of salvation. But when we look at the actual wording of it, you know, it turns out in English that, you know, whosoever believeth translates a Greek term that says to stay in all those having faith. And so there is a shade of meaning there, a shade of difference. Um, you know, if we look at Scripture, we seem to be pointing to the idea that those who have faith are those who, whom God has given faith. Ephesians says that faith is God's gracious gift to those that He's saving so that nobody can boast about it. Again, um, I'm not persuaded that God sent Christ to the cross to die and then sort of metaphorically cross His fingers that people would choose to be saved. And knowing that everyone in the world might reject His offer of redemption. That, to me, feels like God is taking his glory on the choice of sinful man. But I also understand there are people who see that differently, and I don't have a problem with that at all. Um, as I've often said, to me, what matters most, because there's so many things in Scripture where we can't be able to come down to a black and white 
believe exactly this. And I think God intended that for a reason. I think God's sovereign over the preservation of Scripture. And I think God gave us some things and didn't give us some things in black and white for a reason. And I think that we're not supposed to stake our, our hope of salvation on um, some one occurrence or believing that we're part of God's chosen people. We're supposed to base it on the evidence of the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. And so if you see that differently than I do, that's all right. But have a study opinion. Know the scripture, study it prayerfully, and have a studied opinion. That's all I ask of people. Um, so like I said earlier, this understanding of atonement and redemption, it goes back to a much deeper question. Is God sovereign over all things? And if I conclude, I think personally in agreement with scripture that he is, then for me at least, that leads to the understanding that God had a definite plan from the very beginning for the salvation of specific people. And he always has and always will accomplish everything that's in his sovereign will. Including the salvation of everybody he's ever intended to save. Um, clearly God set his heart to set Israel apart as a chosen people for himself. And he preserved them through time by his grace. And we can see how Israel reflects the church that would come. Um, within that... Um, I would say that there always must be a turning to Christ and away from the world. There must be repentance, but we understand repentance is the fruit, not the root of our salvation. And that nobody who ever sincerely desires Christ will ever be turned away. As Moses was at work recording the words of Leviticus, God's promise of atonement and redemption had only been extended to one nation, to Israel. And the commandments here were only for them as God's chosen people. But in the New Covenant, we see how Christ comes to bring that to the fullness of God's people. How Israel of the Old Covenants becomes the true Israel, the church, all the people who God were truly grafted into Jesus Christ in the New Covenants. And how these promises, these commandments, but more importantly, the truth, the promises that they are fulfilled in Christ of permanent atonement a permanent right standing in peace with God are for everyone whom God has called to himself in Christ. So there's no sacrificial, no sacrificial commandment for us now for us to sacrifice goats and bulls because Jesus has already done that fully. We still learn a lot from the complexity and the, um, the specificity of what God calls his people to here, I think. Um, because God cares about every aspect of their lives. And that's a principle that still applies today. That God expects that our relationship with Him will influence every part of our lives. Our business dealings, our relationships with people at work, our relationships with, dare I say, family. Because I don't know about you, but those are some of the toughest ones for me. Um, you know, that all those things will bear witness of our being part of God's people through Jesus Christ. So seek him today, call on him, know that if you truly desire him, God has a place for you in his kingdom. And if you're in Christ, remember this week that no force of heaven or earth or hell, um, nothing created in a spiritual being, nothing that man can do, nothing can ever separate you from the love of God that's in Jesus Christ. Because God is sovereign and he has purpose, if you are his, he has purpose to love you and to redeem you. And God does not fail what he's planned. Let's pray again.
Father, thank you for the, the uh, blessing of your truth. Uh, even though my voice is failing, thank you, God, that you uh, uh, speak your truth through your word. Thank you, God, that you give us the opportunity to draw near to one another, to support each other and encourage each other. God, that in doing so, um, this morning, that we can build each other up into um, the true church of Jesus Christ. Help us, God, to, um, to care for one another in deep ways. To pray not just superficially, but to pray specifically and with passion for our brothers and sisters at Liberty Church and, um, and across the world. Help us, God, to um, set aside our own focus on selfish needs, to look for the needs of those around us and to minister in your name, to bring glory to you and bring healing and grace, to remind your people um, that we are at peace with you through Jesus Christ. And God, my prayer is that your peace would reign in all our hearts today, for your glory in Jesus' name.
Our confession this morning is from Heidelberg, um, the catechism, not the city, although I wish I were in the city right now. It's a beautiful place. Um, question says, what is true faith? And the response says this, true faith is a sure knowledge whereby I accept as true all that God has revealed to us in his word. At the same time, it is a firm confidence that not only to others, but also to me, God has granted forgiveness of sins, everlasting righteousness, and salvation. Out of mere grace, only for the sake of Christ's merits. This faith, the Holy Spirit, works in my heart by the gospel. Amen. The scripture from John 17 says, And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Praise God. Thank you for being here today. God bless you. Go in your peace. <laughs>